Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, picking up in the middle or towards the end of Jesus' kind of farewell discourse to his disciples, teaching them, preparing them uh, for what's going to happen when he goes away. John 16, beginning in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but But if I do go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the spirit of God who makes it effectual. We ask for your help during this hour. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. I think for for most of us, the ministry of the Holy Spirit makes about as much sense as calculus does. It's all, and the reason is because because his, his work is kind of in the invisible, right? His work is kind of out there in the abstract. It's not really in the concrete, at least. I mean, as far as calculus goes, yeah, yeah, we, we, we think that calculus is probably useful for something other than giving freshmen D's on their transcripts. Probably, maybe. You know, maybe it's good for like making electricity or maybe it's good for building buildings and maybe it's good for like protecting them from earthquakes and those sorts of things according to Google. I don't know. But most of us really have no idea, you know, how to do it much less kind of how to actually make it worthwhile. We don't know how to work those 
formulas or equations or whatever you might call them, much less kind of connect them to the world around us. It seems, you know, just so abstract and so theoretical, which is one of the reasons why I kind of dropped out of the engineering program at Georgia Southern my first semester. (laughs) I just don't get it. It just doesn't make sense being out there. I mean, most, most of us, hopefully, obviously, know that the Holy Spirit is God, right? He is the third person of the Godhead. We know that he plays an important role in our, uh, in our regeneration, as we just confessed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that the, the, the work of Christ is applied by the Spirit. So we know that, that he has a, a very important role to play in the application of what Christ has already accomplished And we know that that he changes people so that they can have faith in the first place. He brings people to life. And perhaps even if I just prayed a minute ago, we we may know that he has something to do with the ministry of the word. He has something to do with the Bible. But we're not really sure kind of what he really does, at least not in the level of the concrete, not in the the level of the accessible. We don't know what he does kind of out of theoretical land. And while John 16 verses 1 through 15 kind of help us to answer that question, it's also, as I found out on Monday morning, one of the more perplexing passages in the Gospels and perhaps even in the New Testament. And why is that the case? It's, well, it's because of that, that, that statement that Jesus makes in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's a confusing statement. How in the world is it to the advantage for the church that the Savior himself go away to heaven? I think in order to understand that question, we really have to understand what comes before it and and really what comes after it. You know, kind of contextually, it's important to note that Jesus tells his disciples that it is to their advantage that he goes away in response to their being overwhelmed with sorrow, so overwhelmed with sorrow that they're just kind of checked out at this point in the discourse. They're like, Jesus is like, I'm I'm going away, but you're not even asking where I'm going. Like they're just so overwhelmed with sorrow and so distracted by what's coming that, that they can't think. This is the last night that Jesus is with them. He's about to be betrayed uh, by Judas Iscariot and led to his death. And so Jesus Jesus knows that, uh, and he knows all of these things. He knows what's coming. And so we have this this long teaching section in in verses four, or chapters 14 through 16, preparing these men for what's gonna happen next. And disciples, again, they're sorry they're saddened. First, because their friend whom they, they've been with for three years, they've gotten to know, he's, their, he's one of their great friends, wonderful friends. He's about to go away. He's about to be crucified. He's about to die. They're never going to see him again. After his resurrection, they will. But not only that, but in verses one through four, we kind of understand why they are saddened even more. And it's because that after Jesus dies, they will be facing excommunication from the synagogues and they will be facing persecution. Right? All of the stuff that they were about to face, their hearts, in light of all of those things, their hearts are filled with sorrow. 
All of that persecution and animosity and everything else that, was, that had been directed toward the Lord Jesus himself is about to be on their plate. They're about to have to be the ones that deal with it. And the plan is, in the midst of all of that, their sadness from losing their friend, their persecution they were about to face, their hearts being filled with sorrow, for them somehow to preach the gospel and plant churches, which honestly seems pretty impossible. Which is why Jesus says this where he says it and when he says it. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. I mean, in our own wisdom, we could think of a lot of things that would be more advantageous for success in preaching the gospel and planting churches than for the best preacher and church planner to go away to heaven. Let's be honest. We could think of a lot of things that would be better than that. But Jesus, in, in his wisdom and in the, the, the plan of the Almighty God, says, it is to your, your advantage that I go away. It's somehow better for you that I go away than if I'm here. This makes you know, a little bit more sense if we had kind of sat down and read all of chapters 14 through 16 in one sitting. Right, we would know all the benefits that are going to be ours of Christ, since Christ is going away. We know that he's going to prepare a place for his disciples in chapter 14, verse 2. We know that because Jesus is going to the Father, his disciples would do greater works than he's done. Chapter 14, verse 12, we know that Jesus' departure would lead to a greater understanding of the Trinity, verses, or chapter 14, verse 20, and, and so on. Many blessings flow from Christ's going away. But here, in the midst of their sorrow, Jesus doesn't pick back up on any of those themes. He picks up on the truth that when he goes, the helper will come. This is also not the first time Jesus has, has mentioned this, 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 uh, this person, this, this helper, The Holy Spirit's all over John 14 through 16. The helper we know would be of great benefit to the disciples in their ministries after the resurrection and ascension of Christ because he would come alongside them. That's what the name means, that he would come alongside them in their ministries. There are many benefits that flow from that. Though Jesus had been with them for three years, Jesus tells them the helper will come and be with you forever, John chapter 14, verse 16. And though Jesus had been with them for three years, the, the, the spirit, the helper would come and be in them. And though Jesus had been teaching them faithfully, when the helper comes, he would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus had said. And when the helper comes, whom Jesus would send to them from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he would bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit is going to bear witness about Jesus. But chapter 15, verse 27, they also would bear witness about Jesus because they had been with him from the beginning. Spirit's going to accompany them as they bear witness about Christ. And so, though Jesus was going away, They were not being left as orphans. 
chapter 14, verse 18. Though it looked like an uphill battle for the disciples, Jesus reminds them that the helper would be their helper. And though it looked like their ministries were doomed for certain failure, what would be their saving grace was, was this helper, their helper whom, whom Jesus would send in his stead. And that, that would be to their advantage. That would be better for them than the current state of affairs. But how? Right? We know the helper is going to be good. We know he's going to be great. We know that he's going to help the disciples. We know that he's going to, he's going to be in and around and involved in their ministries. Yeah, we, we get what Jesus says here that he's coming, but, but how would that kind of, how would the work of the Spirit actually work itself out in kind of time and space? How would the work of the Spirit work itself out into the concrete? How does the ministry of the Spirit make our ministries better? How does, the, how does he work concretely in a way that is more advantageous than when the Son of God was here in the flesh? It's a huge question. Well, I think it begins with where the Spirit does his work. Now, I'm not necessarily, not necessarily talking about the, the geographical change that, that Jesus mentions in verse 8 when he says, you know, when the helper comes, he will convict the world, right? That's very important that he would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, right? There will be a geographical expansion with the Spirit's ministry, we see that come to fruition in, in the book of Acts where the gospel goes out from Jerusalem, Judea, and Sumeria, and to all the earth. But I'm not necessarily talking about, about that geographical change. I'm more talking about kind of the, the anatomical change, the, the anatomical focus of the Spirit's ministry, which is the fact that he will convict. And where does conviction take place? It takes place in the heart, the center, the very center of the human person. The Spirit will be at work in the heart's of those who are under the disciples' ministry of the word. And what would he be at work in their hearts doing? Well, he would be convicting them, but what would he be convicting them of? Well, in verse, verse nine, he would be convicting them concerning their sin, their unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will convict the world of righteousness, of what true righteousness is. The world had no idea what righteousness was. They had crucified the Lord of glory, the only one to ever live a life characterized by perfect righteousness. They had crucified him. But Jesus' going to the Father would prove them wrong, would vindicate Jesus' claims that he is the son of God. You don't go to the father unless you are as righteous as the father himself is. His ascension would vindicate his ministry and his person and it would at the same time condemn the world and show them their own bankruptcy of righteousness. And the spirit would convict the world of judgment the devil himself had already been judged. 
And unless the folks under the ministry of, of the disciples and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, unless they repent, they would be judged just the same. In other words, the Spirit would be at work in the hearts of those who sat under the ministry of the Word, convicting them and driving them to the end of themselves and into repentance and faith in Christ for salvation from sins. That is the work of the Spirit. And it's a work that begins, salvation is a work that begins with conviction in the heart. We actually see this, this work itself out in, in real time and space in Acts chapter 2. At Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the, the Spirit's been poured out upon God's people. And so Peter preaches this wonderful sermon at Pentecost and, and Peter directly addresses the people's sin. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, in the, in the preaching of the word, addresses their sin. He also addresses the vindication of the Lord of glory as he was raised and ascended. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and, and uh, this Jesus God raised up And of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. The fact that he's at the right hand of God vindicates his ministry and his person. And what was the result? Though it was Peter preaching, what was actually going on inside the hearts of the people? Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So this is what the Spirit does. He takes the ministry of the word and drives it home into the hearts of the hearers and he, he convicts. But you have to notice that, that it wasn't, in Acts 2, it wasn't Peter's preaching that cut their hearts. It wasn't the greatness of the sermon that cut their hearts. According to John 16, verses eight through 10, it was the spirit of the almighty God. It was the helper who convicted them of their sin and righteousness and judgment. It was God himself, not the apostle Peter, who drove them to conviction. And likewise, it is God himself who addresses our hearts through the Spirit's work of conviction under the ministry and in the ministry of the word, under and in the ministry of the word. It's God himself who addresses our hearts through the Spirit's work of conviction under and in the ministry of the word. In other words, God is doing the same thing right now as he did in Acts chapter two, verse 37. 
God is doing the same thing right now that he said that he would do in John chapter 16, verses eight to 10. Which means that when you are stirred in your heart under the ministry of the word concerning, concerning sin, concerning your sin, the sin that, that no one else knows about, the sin that only God can see and know, the, the sin of unbelief even, that it's not, it's not the preacher that's stirring that conviction. It's, it's the Holy Spirit who is at work. And that means that, that when you're convicted of your own bankrupt righteousness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that righteousness that, that, that you might try to earn by being you know, just a decent human and, and, and not being a meanie to other people, right? It, it's not the preacher who's convicting you of that self-righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. And it means that, that when you're convicted of the fact that because of unbelief and because of your bankrupt righteousness, that if you're, an, uh, if you're not a Christian, that you are doomed for hell forever, just like the devil. It's not the preacher who's doing that. If you're convicted in your heart, it's the Holy Spirit who is at work. Conviction in the heart really and honestly and truly has nothing to do with how good or maybe even bad the preacher is. It has nothing to do with how good the sermon is. It is the Holy Spirit who is at work. It's always the Holy Spirit who is at work convicting hearts. Which means that we ought to be really careful with what we do with conviction in our hearts. Right, if it's conviction that's stirred by the Holy Spirit and not just some preacher behind a pulpit, then all of a sudden that conviction becomes a lot more serious. Right, if it's the third person of the Trinity, God himself who is making me uneasy, about my sin or my bankrupt righteousness or about the coming judgment, then I can't afford to neglect it or put it aside or stuff it to the back of my mind. I have to deal with it. I have to deal with God himself. And so let me urge you, in light of these theological truths, to treat your conviction with the utmost seriousness. Think through it. And if that conviction, if through that conviction you realize that, that perhaps you're not a Christian, praise God. That's the first step in coming to Christ for salvation, right? Come to the Lord Jesus. Come talk to me and, or one of the elders and we'll talk you through it. We say that every Sunday before the, Lord's, before the Lord's Supper. Come to us. We love having that conversation. But please don't let that conviction pass you by. Today is the day of salvation. Not guaranteed tomorrow. 
Or maybe, maybe, if you're, maybe if you're a Christian, let me also urge you to, to treat your conviction with the Spirit's conviction with the utmost seriousness. And think through it. And if the Spirit has convicted you in your heart for some sin or for some bankrupt righteousness, repent. Turn to Christ. Move on from suffering under conviction by the Spirit to walking by the Spirit. And so whomever or or whatever you are, treat conviction in your heart from the Lord God Almighty with the utmost seriousness because of who it comes from, because of who is doing it, because God himself is at work in your heart. It's not some preacher, it's not some pastor, it's not a sermon, it's God himself who is doing the work in here. And not only does God address our hearts through the Spirit's work of conviction, but He also addresses our hearts through the Spirit's work of declaration. And the work that the Spirit does is is conviction, and how He brings it about is through declaration. Verses 12 through 15 are maybe perhaps as mesmerizing as the rest of the chapter that precedes them. And in verse 12, Jesus perceives... He perceives by the disciples' look on their faces that their finitude <laughs> has gotten to them. I, have, I still have many things to say to you, but, but you can't bear them now. There's so much more to say, but there's not much more that they can hear. Except the fact that when the spirit of truth comes, that he would guide them into all truth. In other words, the content, the words of the Spirit's ministry, they wouldn't be original. Right? It's, there's words that belong to the Father and the Son. Right? He, he does not actually speak on his own authority, but he, he speaks whatever he hears from heaven. That's what he talks about. That's what he speaks. Right? He, would, he would also kind of continue the prophetic ministry of Christ. He would declare to the disciples the things that were to come in the future. And so by being this, this enunciator of heavenly truth, he would glorify the Son. And he would point the recipients of his ministry not to himself, but to Christ. This would be his primary task. Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we, we get that to a degree. We, we understand that. We agree with that. But, but again, we kind of ask the question, how, do, how does that come to fruition? How does the Spirit's ministry of, of declaration become a reality? Right? What, what, what would it do in, in real life and in real time? I think first, this this declarative ministry of the Spirit came to fruition in real life and real time through the writing of Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how both the Old and the New Testaments were written, right? The, The men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Part of how John 16 verses 12 to 15 come to fruition in space and time 
is how the Spirit would declare heavenly truth. They would, he, would, he would help the disciples to remember. He would remind them of everything that, that Jesus has ever told them. That they might write the back half of your Bible. Right? Part of how his ministry of declaration comes true is that he would write the New Testament scriptures through the apostles. And he finished that part of his work. Right? That part of his ministry of declaration is done. But a second way in which the spirit of truth carries out his ministry of declaration is through the ministry of the word. You read through your New Testament, you notice that that verb, declaration, is used all over the New Testament to refer to the preaching of the word of God. In Acts 15, 4, in Acts 20, verses 20 and 27, in 1 Peter 1, 12, 1 John 1, 5, all over the New Testament, people declare the word of God in their preaching. The spirit of truth declares the heavenly truth of the Father and the Son through the preaching of the word. And not just the preaching of the word from the mouths of the apostles, but the preaching of the word from men who were called by God. Not just 2,000 years ago, but in the year 2023. And not by declaring new truth, right? I'm not speaking new truth, but by declaring truth that was already written. The Spirit's work of declaration is, is still going on in the ministry of the Word, the preaching of the Word in the church today, meaning that God declares truth through the ministry of the Word by the Spirit as the written Word of God is preached. And let me simplify that statement a little bit. God speaks to you through the preaching of the Word. When the preaching of the word is rooted in and shaped by and founded upon and comprised of the written word of God, then it is the word of God declared to you, which means that when the word of God is preached faithfully, that the spirit is at work as you interact with the words of the mouth from the mouth of Christ, from the mouth of the preacher. Reformation picked up on this truth in the second Helvetic Confession when they said the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And Paul says just as much in 1 Thessalonians first, chapter 2, verse 13 when he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God himself speaks to his church every Sunday morning and evening in the preaching of the word of God. God himself addresses your hearts in the preaching of the word. God himself addresses our hearts through the ministry, the, the Spirit's ministry of declaration. And if that is the case, 
If God speaks to his people through the preaching of the word, when it is founded upon and rooted in and shaped by the written word of God, now that means something very important for me. It means that I better make sure that what I'm preaching is the word of God. That it's not a hobby horse, that it's not me beating my drum or, or whatever. I better make sure that it, it is the word of God. But it also means something for all of us. It means that when the word is preached explicitly from the written text or, or kind of their confession language, thereby good and necessary consequence, then sitting under the preached word is in a whole different category of thing than I do in the rest of my life. Because God is catering his word to me. He's speaking to me. And if God, if God is speaking, then that means that I better be listening. Because at that point, it's not, just, it's not just me, it's not just Pastor Michael, it's not just us getting up and putting together a bunch of words that kind of make sense and making points and so on and so forth that make me feel good or maybe they make me feel bad. It's not that. It's the Spirit of God relaying heavenly truth to me. It means that at least once a week, every Sunday, I get to have a conversation with God the Father and God the Son through the work of the Spirit in the ministry of the Word. I get to hear from God Himself. Which is one of your reasons, frankly, why, why your session places such a huge and high value on this event, the worship of the Almighty God, and especially on the preaching of the word. Because from the call to worship to the benediction, God speaks to us and we praise him back. And God speaks to us and we praise him back. And the apex of that worship service is the preaching of the word because God is speaking through it to his people. And so this, this activity what we are doing, it's not just a routine. It's not just, just kind of a box to check, oh, I've done that thing for the week. It's really not even just obedience. It's much grander than that. It's a conversation with God Almighty, one where he speaks, but more importantly, I get to listen. In conclusion, if all of that is true, and if I know that every Sunday God himself through the spirit of truth and through the helper is going to convict me concerning my sin and my righteousness and my judgment, and if I know that he's going to convict me concerning my sin and righteousness and judgment that I might be conformed into what I was predestined to be, which is the image of Christ, if I know that, and if I know that I will get to hear from my heavenly Father and his Son through the preaching of the word, through the ministry of the spirit of truth, then what reason do I have not to rejoice? And if I gave anyone in the room 
the opportunity to speak face-to-face with Jesus or, or have him speak face-to-face with you for one time a week for the rest of your life. I don't think a person in this room would turn that opportunity down. You'd be beside yourself with overwhelming joy. That's what you're experiencing on Sunday mornings. Through the Spirit of God, you are enjoying that opportunity to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And so in light of the question that we asked at the start, how in the world is it to our advantage that Jesus goes away? In light of the truth that it's God who works with our hearts and convicts our hearts and speaks to our hearts, we realize, yes, it is to our advantage that he goes away, physically. But that doesn't mean he's not here spiritually. He most certainly is, and he's here in power. He's here in power. So rejoice and draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that you have not left us as orphans in calling the Lord Jesus Christ back to your right hand, but that you've graciously given us the ministry of the spirit of truth to relay heavenly truth to us. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to worship you But more importantly, we thank you that we have the opportunity to hear from you. And so we pray that as we have that opportunity on a weekly basis, oh Lord, that you would give our hearts joy as we get to hear from the Lord Christ himself. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.